The following episode has sexual themes and mildly explicit language. The content was made for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Saris on Screen. I'm Usha. And I'm Rico. And we're talking about politics, patriarchy, and pop culture. Catch us every other Friday as we do feminist deep dives into South Asian culture and cinema. Before we start, we'd like to add an additional trigger warning. The topics that are tackled in this episode, such as purity culture, gender-based violence, sexual assault, and abuse, can be emotionally triggering and disturbing. So we recommend that all our listeners prioritize their mental health and engage with the following content with caution. We hope to take on this discussion with care and sensitivity, but we encourage our audience to be careful and put their well-being first. With the nature, the sensitive nature of this discussion in mind, we'd like to welcome you back to the latter half of our discussion on rape and purity culture. If you remember, in our last episode, we focused on ideas of consent and how it's practiced and understood in South Asia and how our media glorifies these portrayals of non Yeah, and I think that, you know, we all know the impact that the media can have in shaping our collective ideas of consent and how we perceive the women around us. But at the mm-hmm. same time, that's only a fragment of the greater problem. Yeah, and I think what we really wanted to focus on and address in this episode is sort of the double-faced nature of purity culture, which professes to be about, you know, moral righteousness, but it still reinforces the same underlying ideas behind rape culture. Yeah, and, you know, as it stands in South Asia and probably many, many other parts of the world, unfortunately, um, how pure society perceives you can be the difference between whether people think you deserve to be treated like a human being or not. Yeah, and I think when we look around ourselves, we see that purity culture is almost universally weaponized under these systems, of, in, under any system of oppression, really. And the repercussions for violating the rules of purity culture are sometimes like physical violence and brutality, if not also complete social ostracization. And both these, um, you know, this two-sided coin of purity and rape culture have been leveraged against people against in this culture of, like, control that we have. Yeah, and, you know, like, oftentimes it's really hard to, like, you know, see, like, sort of the direct, like, sort of parts of, like, purity and rape culture because it's so like ingrained in the rest of our like sort of broader culture and you know it is so hard to separate it from the cultural practices and traditions that we like practice and Mm. you know and it's just you know like i I get why people can get very touchy when we're trying to like you know you know parse it out and everything but (laughs) i think we really need to step back from time to time and be like oh yeah no the things that we do some of it, while on the surface looks good, can have really insidious impact on women and marginalized people. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think another thing to note here is that the consequences become more severe at every intersection of someone's like class, caste, gender, sexuality, and other identities, right? Because mm-hmm. like, 
all these conversations around rape often ignore the the dynamics of like power and marginalization that many people in our countries face. Yeah, and I think like you know, like we've wanted to examine this for a while now, particularly examining sort of the religious and cultural traditions mm. around purity and honor culture, like ideas of like model victims within the South mm. Asian context, like specifically, and you know, briefly go over like things like choice feminism and its limitations in examining modesty culture in South Asia, which is often conflated with purity culture, but it is not the same thing. Yeah, and I think the other a couple of things that we also wanted to get into is, you know, like briefly talk about false accusations because um, I think there's no way to talk about rape or purity culture without talking about false accusations. Oh, yeah, some and how people always bring it up every time. Like, so, yeah, I yeah. Mean, we're not saying that we can't have this conversation. It's just that, you know, people, some, some dude in the comments will always be like, but you did not mention the biggest issue with rape culture. It's false accusations. And I mean, these dudes are, and like a lot of other people like them, always use the false accusation mm-hmm. argument to either disbelieve or invalidate women and like oppress women and marginalize people mm-hmm. even further, right? Yeah. And yeah, so like that's tentatively like what we plan to go over in this episode. And you know, that's heavy. Like, I mean, that <laughs> took us a while. It but- took us a while. Yeah, it took us a while to get through this. We really did want to do it justice and go through it as sensitively as possible. But at the same time, this is, you know, a very sensitive topic for us to tackle personally. And, you know, we we started when we started, we wanted to watch, you know, the three movies that we like usually do. But then we're like, you know, we never said that we were just going to do like fictional cinema. And for something mm-hmm. as like in like sort of sensitive as this and something as like specific as this, it seems very important to pick more like sort of non-fictional narratives. And, Absolutely. And, you know, it's still media. And I think the one thing that we did really focus on is finding media that can be available for everyone for like free. And so we picked like, three movies last time that explored ideas of non-consent, which is a big part of all of this. And, you know, we looked over objectification of women and the broader media, and we looked at its impact on rape culture. But in this episode, we are doing something a little different. Yeah, I think, I mean, documentaries and, like, non-fictional narratives obviously come with their own... Mm-hmm biases and we will like get into that a little bit but i think it's also important to like explore and utilize other types of accessible media for our discussions all the documentaries we've watched are available to stream for free and are linked in our show notes and on our website sarisonscreen.com along with the other resources so with that let's get into it Feminists across different political spectrums all unite on the collective threat of sexual violence. Everyone can agree that rape is bad. However, an unlikely ally in this political movement against sexual violence is nationalistic conservative men. And it's not a coincidence, right? Like many other parts of the world, rape and women's purity have a symbolic place in both the history and cultural practices and mythologies of our land. 
Yeah, and both of these are often also the foundations of nationalistic right-wing narratives that are not only dismissive of women's agencies and realities, but also not centered around the victims of rape, instead only weaponizing these events to further their own political agenda. Yeah, and I think it's worth examining that some of these narratives are uh, rooted in our cultural stories and they perpetuate this culture of control and surveillance against women and their activities and sexuality. And, I mean, it just gives off that idea that nothing women ever do is about them and it's somehow always reflective of their larger social, social and cultural, like, associations Mm -hmm. you know yeah no absolutely just looking at a few of the hindu epics we can see like how the women are largely treated as like objects and properties and you know we'll not be summarizing the whole thing obviously it's like a thousand pages but um (laughs) they're you know and they also vary a lot geographically so we don't want to be reductive on that either but the patriarchal ideas within them are very very universal yeah i mean just thinking about like the ramayan which is you know one of the bases of hindu mythology um sita the main female like lead if we can call her that is literally asked to like walk through fire to prove her purity um because she was kidnapped and then Mm. she gets abandoned and slut shamed by her own husband while she's pregnant for years like after waiting to be rescued Mm. after just like dealing with the trauma of kidnapping and all of that she just comes home to being like slut shamed Mm -hmm. so like what is that yeah and in the Mahabharata, like Draupadi, the main female character is pretty much just told like oh you're just gonna be shared by these like five brothers Um, and like you know not that we don't appreciate like the poly representation (laughs) and i hope they're that they're all hot some of the depictions they don't all look hot I mean, she did. She technically wanted to marry like one of them, right? Yeah, she um, just wanted to marry the one. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is that you know, like you know, it's very you know, we can be like, oh yeah, Bali representation, Hinduism ahead of its game, but like <laughs> also like it's a lot less girl boss if we're just never told what she wanted, which we aren't. We're never yeah, told never. what she wanted, and to make it worse, like they like keep gambling her away, right, as like collateral. <laughs> yeah, and, they literally use her like property. Yeah, and then when she's about to be sexually assaulted. Like, none of them can do anything about it. I mean, what's the point in having, like, five husbands? I thought if you're with your husband, you don't have to be sexually assaulted. But, I mean, she needs to be saved by, like, a literal god. Like, Krishna has to come in to fucking save her. And, I mean, just to, like, just on a side note on Krishna himself, like, he has been known to steal, like, women's clothes, like, quote-unquote, in jest. Um, while they had like bats and rivers. So, I mean, if this is what like your divine mm. men are doing, what like expectations can we even <laughs> have from like mortal men, right? Yeah. And I think it's like fair to say that the objectification of women is just inherent in like our social values. And the sexual violence always seems to be something that is the victim's responsibility and not the assaulter's. And I mean, this is like the basis of purity culture itself, right? Where the premise is always about policing and surveilling people's lives and choices based on these like very arbitrary, like moral standards and codes that women and marginalized people are held to way more often than privileged men would. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that 
Additionally, these standards are then used to dictate people's worths and values in society and then weaponized against them in different scenarios where when they deviate even like slightly from them. And we can Mm -hmm. see this in things as normalized as slut shaming and victim blaming to more vicious acts like honor killings and vengeful sexual violence, all of which are again rampant in our midst <laughs> like this is like inescapable like not even in present day narratives not in myths not in religions and i don't think any religion yeah like sometimes you look at these stories and they're like they're like you know how to books about like how to harass women how mm. to oppress women how yeah. to like sexualize women it's 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 horrifying yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like going back to, I think, where we started about like, you know, how rape is appropriated in these nationalistic and orthodox agendas. We see this a lot of the times in the arguments made by many South Asian leaders who like to say things like, you know, straying away from traditional values is like the main cause of rape. Mm, like, eating oh, jamin, the girl eating jamin, talking on the phone, wearing jeans. Um, in Bangladesh, we always got go at schools, go at space, like, you know, like spaces. Yeah, just anything. Spaces. But, like, I mean, they really don't have to look that far, right? I mean, our own stories have enough, like, mm. fodder to, like, justify and glorify women's harassment. So, like, yeah. they don't yeah. know, need to mm. look as far as the West to find things to blame. Really. Yeah, but, like, you know, like, on the flip side of all this, you know, like, we're not just here to, like, do the usual take of like oh culture bad like you know like that's why yeah, no, like, we're not doing not. that like on the flip side of things neoliberal feminists often take you know a contrary position to like sort of the conservative men where they're like you know blaming culture and tradition you know in lieu of modernity and neither argument is particularly cons- constructive to the cause and when we say modernity it's like you know in like what we colloquially mean like by modern like you know it's like oh yeah like not traditional equals modern not like you know the yeah the antithesis <laughs> of tradition yeah. is modern yeah. yeah and i think like when you look at like this sort of neoliberal feminist sort of like vision i, I think we see this like sort of modern globalized south asia where sexual violence is just like this part a part of like this very traditional very archaic past. And the problem isn't that sexual violence is inherent everywhere. The problem is that it's inherent in certain types of South Asian men, I think, is the argument that they often mm-hmm. try to make. Like they always, they never say it out loud, but it's always yeah. implicit, like in their, like, you know, just like general arguments. It's always like, these are upper class, you know, working spaces are safe spaces because the men are modern the men Mm -hmm. know how to like be western the men are globalized and then on the other hand you get working class men Mm -hmm. and like more marginalized men migrant workers yeah yeah who aren't part of these like more like privileged spaces are like traditional they're not modern men so they are the rapists Mm -hmm. because westernized and you know upper class men can't rape (laughs) yeah because you watch enough blues clues when you're young and you're suddenly like immune to being like a like rapist um (laughs) i mean that's the narrative right like that is the narrative like and people don't like 
and they don't acknowledge. I think often what is the most gross part of it is that we know statistically everyone knows that you are more likely to face like sexual abuse and assault at the hands of someone you like know. No, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, this these arguments are these implicit biases are very harmful, not just in its like classist undertones, but also just like, you know, just the blind just the sheer blindness to the amount of sexual violence that is perpetrated by upper class and upper caste men whose power mm-hmm. and privilege allow them to be never held accountable. Yeah, and I think like another like sort of connected thought here is that like, you know, rape in these like upper, more middle class spaces is often viewed as this like class and caste retaliation. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that same idea of like, you know, women from my community are being like what do you call it, violated mm-hmm. by these like traditional working class yeah. men and i mean yeah, like we said yeah. like that's not like that's maybe a fractional mm-hmm. number of cases of sexual assault that happen right mm-hmm. and i think like we see this repeated in like other parts of the world too we've seen how white men will and white women will weaponize this sort of this like vision of like us and them into mm-hmm. like sort of these like and always perceive rape as sort of like a retaliation like of sorts right or mm-hmm. like they'll always use rape to sort of weaponize oppression against black people and the the same persists in south asia when it comes to Absolutely. class and caste right or even like ethnic ethno-linguistic like minority groups like we see the Absolutely. same thing yeah and i think other than being completely reductive about who commits these crimes these South Asian neoliberal narratives around rape often prioritize productivity rather right. than the emotional and physical well-being of people. Absolutely. The problem with rape isn't that it's a brutal violation of your autonomy, but the threat of rape is just primarily a bigger thing because it impedes women from being modern workers in the sort of globalized capitalist workforce, right? Yeah, and I think you know the issue with this binarization of the discourse around rape um, keeps suggesting that the problem with being raped or sexually assaulted or the threat of rape and sexual violence isn't that it's, you know, a personally traumatic experience. It's always either that it's a mark on your cultural honor, posing it as, I mean, people often pose it as something that's even worse than death, you know. Mm-hmm. Or it's something that prevents us from being like this cosmopolitan, these cosmopolitan workers untouched by, you know, the uncivilized orthodox people and ideas. And both of these narratives, like, kind of uphold that, like, idea that rape is a consequence of your own personal actions and choices and is somehow your personal responsibility for preventing, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. like, not true right yeah and both are bad like i mean (laughs) i don't want to go into which is more bad you know but both are bad and you know one is clearly like coming up a bit more and the i don't know like we get to see one more than the other but yeah i think one of the things that we also really wanted to look at is you know how in the grander like sort of south asian narrative for both like the general more liberal population and more the orthodox or traditional population 
Grief is often still just seen as something on the spectrum of illegitimate, like, sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, you know, on par with, like, premarital sex or having kinks or being queer or... Um, but, I mean, it's never, like, ever discussed in the context of how there is a violation of consent. Mm-hmm. Like, consent rarely enters the conversation mm-hmm. around rape in South Asia. Yeah, right? it's just a general form of, like, illegitimacy, like every other form of sexuality, essentially. And Basically. It's like, yeah. And, like, you know, even with this reductive idea of rape, it's still used to undermine and trivialize other forms of sexual violence, like stalking, verbal harassment, threats of violence, acid attacks, physical violence, and even, like, death. Like, people will literally say, like, oh, thank God she died and didn't get, like, raped. Right. Yeah. And it's, like... That's horrifying, right? Like, you shouldn't... It is absolutely horrifying, but at the same time, it's so commonplace. Like, rape is the utmost dishonor. So everything Mm -hmm. else can just, you know, we don't, you know, like... Everything else is, like, less important. At least you didn't get raped. Yeah, and it's not deserving of institutional, no, or, like, you know, emotional or any kind of sympathy, essentially. Yeah, and I think, like, this sort of personal disassociation that our culture sort of perpetuates from sexual violence and, like, how it, like, the... The consequences of sexual violence are about the culture and the larger, like, mm-hmm. family or social group, and never about the individual themselves. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they kind of go back and feed into these narratives that actually hold survivors of sexual violence personally responsible for not being assaulted, like, which is where, like, all our victim blaming, all our mm-hmm. victim shaming comes in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, who amongst us haven't heard, like, you know, like, just, like, watch how you dress, watch where you mm-hmm. go, watch what you eat, like, you know, watch who you're with. Like, it has been our responsibility since we, like, stepped foot on, like, just this ground that, like, you know, that it's your responsibility to prevent rape rather than a social and institutional problem because Mm. the society is always absolved of its like role in like you know perpetuating and ultimately this to-do list of how to prevent rape itself is just it's just another form of control on women's access to spaces and personal autonomy so no matter you know how you want to dress that up it's the same, you know? And it's not, like, it's not limited to, you know, traditional, like, circles mm-hmm. either. We see a lot of, like, liberal iterations of this too, you know, learn self-defense, be practical about your choices. What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Um, vet your dates and locations, all of that. And just because, like, you know, this liberal mindset allows that little... I mean, as long as you go to work, it's fine. Like, you know, nothing else really <laughs> yeah. matters, you know? Um, yeah, but it still doesn't take away that base premise that, like, the onus of protecting yourself is on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and that's, like, really problematic. Yeah, and I mean, that's, uh, you know, I mean, we can keep repeating it over and over again, but that really is the main baseline of how purity culture, like, really Absolutely. perpetuates rape culture, right? Because purity is something that you control in both of these narratives. Somehow, you know, like just in like fancier <laughs> ways and like less fancier ways. But yeah, I think this like 
culturally inherent shaming of the victims and absolving perpetrators of the responsibility was really exemplified in like the Quint documentary we watched. Um, I think everyone's watched it was sh- shared on Facebook a lot, but it's a also on our times, link. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's also on our links. Um, it's a documentary on Haryana titled "Rape Is Consensual." Um, this documentary, you know, looks at the cultural dynamics and perceptions of rape in the Indian state of Haryana. And Haryana, along with other northern states in India, has one of the lowest sex ratios, as well as the highest incidences of gender-based violence and killings. Mm. Yeah. Um, not on top on Lonely Planet, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> um in a lot of ways, this documentary like really dug deep into the basic premise of rape culture that everyone but the rapist is to blame for rape. And we see snippets of, you know, primarily rural and poor populations saying things like, both parties are at fault for rape. And if girls are nice to boys or are jeans, the boys will get attracted to them. And you know, rape can't be physically prevented because, you know, boys are biologically, like, programmed that way. Um, but yeah, the thing is that these aren't uncommon ideas. And, like, you know, I didn't really like how the documentary made it seem like it was a Haryana-specific, like, attitude or anything. But yeah, like, the documentary's, you know, implicit bias just makes it seem like it's, like, a very isolated, rural, traditional class and caste-based phenomena, that these ideas just simply don't exist and, like, you know... Yeah, I think that positioning definitely problematic because even if these ideas are sort of more exaggerated or, like, more easy to, like, see in, like, certain spaces, it doesn't mean that they don't exist, like, outside of the rural, like, yeah. traditional... Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're like, not saying that things. it's not bad. We're just saying that it's bad everywhere. And I think that yeah. when you just pick at, like, one scab, you're missing, like, the entire, like... The skin. entire, like, picture. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, like, this documentary really kind of tries to drive home that idea that, like, the very existence of a woman is sometimes considered enough justification for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is, like, how young women and girls are socialized in South Asia, like, throughout their lives. And, I mean, in other parts of the yeah. world, too, that you're under constant threat of se- sexual violence just because you are, like, there. And your purity is something that, like, deserves to be protected, sometimes at the mm-hmm. cost of your own, like, life even yeah and like as bleak as that sounds like it's true like even in our personal experiences like other than just you know interacting with it to whatever degree like we also like you know were told since we were like eight years old that like oh be careful about who's coming like who's talking to you how they're Mm. talking to you how they're touching you and it's like it's a very just like I mean, you know, you kind of just assume that that is the standard of like life and whatnot. But it's it's very sad that we have to tell eight year olds like that they can just be brutally like sexually like violated. Like it's depressing. and that's how we're raising like half our like countries at this mm-hmm. point, right? Like, yeah, because boys never need to like hear about this, obviously, because they're children. And that's a whole yeah. other issue that mm-hmm. like you know we like. Men have 
even fewer spaces sometimes to like mm-hmm. come out about like sexual yeah. violence. And they're not and educated on it sooner. I mean, I'm not saying that, oh yeah, gender equality means every eight-year-old gets to hear about rape. But like, I'm saying that ideally, this would not be a concern for children. And ideally, even if like you were to go through something like this, everyone sh- would have the avenues to like sort of come forward and like get to have like some justice on it. Um, yeah, I think like the way we raise boys like is problematic in that sense too because we never let them even know that for women or like girls, rape is like a constant threat. Mm-hmm. For boys, it's never even told to them that it would be a threat, you know. Mm-hmm. So if it does happen, they have no one but themselves to blame. Mm-hmm. So that victim blaming is like, I mean, it's it may be biased I mean, towards a gender, but it's not gender specific, you know. Yeah. And, like, I mean, boys may not be victim-blamed, but there's just also no, like, you know, there's a different set of problems on that end, right? Um, And also just, like, even for people from marginalized, like, genders, like, because of how ostracized they are in society, like, they have even far fewer avenues than even men, right? Absolutely. Um, And the thing is that, you know, like, overall, this basis of victim blaming just the concept overall and like you know just like shaming the victims like mm. it it stands on invalid invalidating ideas of like consent and bodily autonomy because when you say a woman is asking for it you're essentially saying that she does not need to verbalize sexual desire her mere existence signals it and you know we talked about this in our previous episode how consent when it comes to specific groups such as sex workers is considered considered always present, you know, like it's mm. implied that it's like always present, which is, you know, which makes them even more vulnerable to sexual assault and violence. And it just robs them of their ability to withdraw and offer consent voluntarily. Right. And it's, you know, like, it's really fucked up because sex workers are simultaneously seen as people who are choosing to be quote unquote promiscuous. Yeah. But also at the same time, these are they are seen as people who have no choices over their sexualities at all. It's just a constant state of being where you are like a vessel essentially. Yeah, like a vessel for male desire, essentially. The cognitive dissonance on that like yeah. is just like so bizarre to me like it's like oh yeah they're bad because they choose to be bad also they don't have any choice what how can they say no <laughs> like, it's like yeah, yeah i think like it's definitely like mind-boggling mm-hmm. how people live with it and i mean i think this hierarchy of consent that we discussed previously also goes into like this hierarchy of even victimhood right that some victims are deemed to be more deserving of justice than other victims. And we see this hierarchy manifest a lot when we have like very well-publicized rape cases in South Asia. And usually when people are more like universally outraged, it's the victim is usually this educated upper middle-class girl or woman that everyone can relate to. Mm-hmm. And so these victims from minority and marginalized like backgrounds either caste, class, gender groups, they often don't receive any or very negligible media mm-hmm. attention. And sometimes like when the when the rape survivor, like sexual assault survivors from a marginalized community and the 
assaulter, the rapist is from like a privileged community. People will even come out like in the rapist defense like this. I'm really like heartbroken to say that this happened literally, I think it's early 2021 in Delhi when this nine-year-old like Dalit girl was raped, gang raped by like a Hindu priest and his like workers or something. And people were like protesting in his defense because he's a Hindu priest. And so how could he have done something like that, Mm -hmm. you know? And just like the complete disbelief that this child had been like brutalized. Yeah. I mean, isn't the argument always for like the perpetrators, if they're privileged enough, that Mm -hmm. how could they have done it? They're so good. And you need, you only need like one good thing to justify why they can't have done it. But for the victim, it's always just one bad thing, like quote unquote bad thing again, because bad is a very like, like amorphous thing. Yeah. It's a very amorphous term. And you know, this inequality, I like, I agree. It's like absolutely like shitty, just like how it works. And we see this like, you know, in the West too, with like white women getting like so much more coverage. But like, you know, this inequality and collective outrage is just, you know, so reflected, like, so it's also like reflected in our like institutions, right? Where privilege just opens more doors to Mm. justice and also like, you know, running away from justice, you know, but like justice is rare. (laughs) So like, I mean, and the thing is that in the rare instances where justice is available, it's usually more available for women who are from dominant class or caste backgrounds. And, you know, just because they can afford like legal serve, uh, like advice and stuff, and they can, you know, they can afford to pay off like the right, like law enforcement and whatnot. And Mm. the thing is that, you know, Overall, law enforcement is just more likely to be empathetic of victims who have more sociocultural like capital rather than victims who are from marginalized spaces. And the thing is that there are legal clinics in mm. and across South Asia that aim to work with marginalized communities, but oftentimes their region impact can be limited due to financial, political, and institutional constraints. So they Absolutely. have they can often have their hands tied as well and like they can only serve like very small numbers of people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, and I think we see a little bit of commentary on both the limitations of um NGOs and also the biases of our own institutions Mm -hmm. in the documentary, the Vice documentary, which we watched, um, which is called The Crime Unpunished, Rape in Bangladesh. And it follows this um, Bangladeshi American reporter as she interviews police authorities as well as survivors and perpetrators of sexual violence in the Silet region of Bangladesh. And it's available on YouTube for anyone who would like to check it out. And I mean, again, while it's not the greatest in terms of like detail or like depth, and we'll get into that in a bit, I think it was a good documentary to serve as, you know, a primer on some of the overarching attitudes and sort of the institutional inaction around enforcing justice for victims of sexual violence. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. I think like it is definitely a start and like i'll get into it in a bit but like i think one of the things that we see in the documentary that really stood out though 
is just the blatant denial by the authorities about the incidences of rape occurring in the region. And in the interview mm -hmm. with the local police co commissioner, we see him suggesting that there were barely any rape cases <laughs> in his jurisdiction. And when questioned about whether women were afraid of reporting the crimes, he insisted <laughs> that it simply wasn't the case. You know, why would they be afraid? Blah, blah, blah. You know, he was just overall just like super blasé about this whole thing. And it's just like, you know... And the usual, like, route of, like, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, rape only happens when women go out at night when they don't cover up, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, like, you know, it's, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, the bias of the authorities is very, like, visible, definitely, mm -hmm. in this documentary. And I think one of the other interesting things that it did was, like, just really showing how, like, opposing the realities were from like the how the authorities were talking mm -hmm. about rape and sexual violence versus how you know the survivors themselves were talking mm -hmm. about it and how the authorities are being super blase and like no this isn't a problem and the victims are like talking about how they felt pressurized to keep quiet about what mm -hmm. happened to them to not damage like either their reputation or social standing or even just like face any like backlash and mm -hmm. they seem genuinely like fearful of like these repercussions that they could face not just personally but also politically um and socially that their families could be mm -hmm. involved too right yeah i mean like this is pretty much just commonplace in like everywhere in south asia and like it's even more prominent in rural spaces where like the mm -hmm. power hierarchies are so like pronounced um mm -hmm. And it's the thing is that, like, I think this is where I felt like the reporter wasn't perhaps the best person to be making right. this documentary. The reporter is, like, this famous Columbia journalism grad, like, Bangladeshi American woman. I think she went on to make, like, a lot better documentaries. But mm -hmm. I think, like, you know, as a Bangladeshi person, it just felt very tokeny, like, Right. I, it just felt like a very reorientalizing lens that she took onto this mm -hmm. and you know i'm not trying to like don't police here like you know i get it like as long as you're covering something important you know blah 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 but you know and i do think she did press on a lot of important issues but it just never got into the sort of crevices of the social and cultural dynamics or the political ones which are just immensely important if you're trying to discuss the ground realities of like what's happening and I think her limited cultural context and lack of research was very, like, just came through, like, constantly. Right. Because a lot of her questions were just <laughs> pointlessly provocative. Right. And when the answers are very much available. And, right. you know, and, you know, the thing is that many other Bangladeshi reporter would contextualize it for the audience instead of just being like, oh, these men are not answering me hashtag yeah, and, boss like you know like it's like and it just it just had that tone to it which i just i don't know i just really feel like that tone yeah. is fine i don't care but like it it just is, is shitty when you're just not talking about the right things that are actually that actually like, makes wrong. it worse for the victims on ground yeah yeah and i think that's where like i mean the responsibility is really like i would say on advice for mm -hmm. the tokenization here yeah. because i mean yeah it is better to have like a bangladeshi american reporter better than like you know having like just a random white person 
who has zero context and like making documentaries about like South Asia. Mm-hmm. But I think like this person clearly wasn't the most like clued in on the local mm-hmm. context or like the most informed, you know. And it yeah. just felt very tokeny that like look it's a brown person so you know like this is authentic now. Mm-hmm. And like it still ends up using that same very like neoliberal language that very western lens to like mm-hmm. a problem that's very culturally and socially inherent in our parts of the world mm-hmm. without really giving it the sensitivity and sort of that holistic local lens that it needed i think mm-hmm. yeah no i think that it was very reorientalizing we've talked about this before like you mm-hmm. know before we used to get white men who talk about the east and just very like just sort of like surface level ways and now we use the exotifying ways or like surface level ways just you know Mm. without base context and now that's been replaced with like women like brown women in the diaspora and like gay brown men in the diaspora because you know neoliberalism is always just very set on being like you know orientalism but now with gay men (laughs) (laughs) it, 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 it is very just I don't know like it grates at me a little. The thing that, you know, just in this sort of globalized quote unquote world that we live in, and, you know, as I said, there are better journalists available. It just seems in Bangladesh, in, yeah. In Bangladesh and in America. Like, and there are yeah. better Bangladeshi American journalists in America. And the thing is that, you know, they could handle this topic more aptly. And, you know, it's just inexcusable to have this as the one, you know, big popular documentary I made <laughs> in Bangladesh. I'm just right. past the point of like clapping at just anything just because it exists. <laughs> it reminds yeah. me very much of like, you know, you know, just clapping for white journalists for like, you know, coming to Be- South Asia at all. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, thank you for coming <laughs> and reporting. Thanks for looking towards our like yeah. part of the world. We don't just provide cheap labor for you. We <laughs> also like have feelings. Thanks for covering it. Um, but yeah. Yeah, um, but no, I think to quickly sort of maybe just summarize some of the things we thought could have like maybe gone better. I think one of the things that like God really missed in this documentary was just, you know, the larger national and local like political dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, and regional like political dynamics at play and the consequences they have. And also I think it was a very like glass blind sort mm-hmm. of um lens that they took which yeah. didn't examine at all like how privileged perpetrators are protected by local and institutional systems and victims are more susceptible to violence and retribution if they ever try to like talk about it mm. or even like seek any justice mm. right like what type of you know retribution specifically you know mm. like what type of retaliation skin they face they are very political in nature and like Absolutely. I feel like to like completely erase the story of that context is like kind of like garbage. And I mean like mm. you know it's on par for like neolib <laughs> shit like Vice. Like you know I, mean, I don't have like high expectations from Vice or anything. Yeah, but it's just like so reductive. I don't like the the you know authenticity stamp that it does with like having a brown person on. Like I feel like I really yeah. really dislike Vice for that. But yeah. you know this it's is so performative a, and mm, stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
And it isn't just a problem with like American productions. We see this in like our local sort of South Asian productions. Yeah, too, absolutely. Which employ like a very upper class or upper caste like lens. Like even lens, the Haryana yeah. got pretty much like just. Yeah, I mean, it was a very like, oh, I mean, it was of such an urban lens, the Haryana mm. documentary. Yeah. And I think that another part of this documentary that I felt like wasn't handled very well mm. was. I think most conversations around rape in Bangladesh locally is often just, you know, very much shaped by sort of our collective trauma as a country, you know, which again, I don't, I mean, Mm. these are personal traumas of women who face this, but, you know, because of the culture of purity and whatnot, but also just, you know, again, it's just war crime for those of you who don't know um bangladesh became independent in 1971 and during the war of liberation millions of women were Mm. just mass raped as like just a war crime at that time and that's obviously like a very dark history but Mm. it also simultaneously stigmatization but there's also like a little more empathy i would argue compared to like or India, but also at the same time, it carries a different sort of darkness in the greater cultural narrative. And I do think that... Yeah, that I think is, that was completely missing, right? From, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and I'm not saying that, you know, you need to start every documentary about Bangladesh with, like, the War of Liberation, but, like, it happened 50 years ago. Like, the generation that lived through the war, like, is very much still alive. I mean, some and of those women are still alive, Some right? of those women like, are still alive. And yeah. the thing is that they never received reparations in this country. They never got any institutional or social, like, you know, support, support in this country. Yeah. Yeah, beyond, like, just, like, you know, just the initial whatever support that happened. And the title of, like, being, like, you know, the brave women and whatnot. Right. Like, they never really got substantial support. It was just seen as this sort of, like corner of dark history that needs to be sort of like just hidden away and it is but it is very important to any narrative about rape Mm. in Bangladesh Mm. and yeah I just wanted to like make a note of that absolutely yeah and I think like you know these trends of you know political and institutional inaction but also like even retaliation sometimes i mean they aren't Mm -hmm. specific to bangladesh or Mm -hmm. like even any other part of south asia because families and survivors of sexual violence face so much backlash for coming forward i think the uh, the documentary that Mm -hmm. we watched for um, Pakistan, which was called Outlawed in Pakistan, and it's available on Frontline PBS um, for free. Yeah, the links are on, yeah, like our show notes. Yeah, like, you know, we definitely recommend you watch this one if you're not going to watch anything else. It's slightly longer, but I yeah. think it is really just one of the dark. It, it is dark, obviously, but, but it I is, think I it's think, worth the context seeing, of understanding, yeah. like, how how everything is sort of set yeah, up how, against yeah, like how survivors just helpless survivors are in just sort of this system right absolutely um, yeah i think so the documentary just to give our listeners a synopsis the documentary basically 
chronicles the legal battle and struggles of a teenage girl called Kainat Sumru and as she attempts to get justice for being gang raped as a minor and she was only 13 years old pretty much like a child when she was assaulted by these three men from the neighborhood she was a child like it's a depressing part Yeah, yeah, she was like a child when this happened and she was like brutally like uh, violated by these three men from her neighborhood. And after um she survives this, she and she was determined I think to you know get justice. She really had that sort of I'm not going to sit down and take this attitude. And this documentary like sort of traces those obstacles that she faced but ultimately it kind of gets to the point where the accused are like acquitted so mm-hmm. i mean yeah i think it was it was hard to watch even like mm-hmm. personally because you know you yeah. see this like child just actually a mm-hmm. child like fighting so hard against like the system and yeah. you see nothing change Yeah and I think like it reemphasizes the fears that most victims face when navigating these institutions mm-hmm. but also just how much more it's exacerbated when you are mm-hmm. like you know like from a caste or class disprivileged background or have like limited educational access like these are just very very complicated yeah, institutions to navigate yeah. and it's done on purpose like it's not it's not a flaw it's in the design Like, yeah, I mean, um, these institutions are designed to keep up the power dynamics and mm-hmm. make sure that privileged men keep keep their power. And I, I mm-hmm. mean, it's not an accident for sure. Mm-hmm. And even though, like, I think in this case, I think what this documentary did slightly better is that mm-hmm. it did show some of those like sort of intersections slightly. Like, we yeah. get to see that the men who the perpetrators. Like they were people who were while in similar-ish class backgrounds, mm. but they had more political power in yeah, the area, local, and I think that's why cloud. local political yeah. power. And I think that that is something that is so like such an important part of these analyses in South Asia, like local mm. political power, the intersection of that with class, or like even just the slightest differentiation in class, and mm. then like you know just that. um local political power that can grab on to like national political power you yeah, know like is it like is tap very, into leverage tap that into national. yeah yeah, yeah the, those are very just like yeah like real those are aspects very of real the aspects of the, yeah yeah um but yeah i think um like i think th- that's definitely there like those that commentary but mm-hmm. one of the really kind of i think uplifting things about this documentary and something that's not like maybe that common to see all over south asia is just how supportive like kainat's family and her parents are for of like her right to like fight this of her like right to justice for this mm-hmm. and you know like her father and brother were just literally told to like honor kill her on multiple occasions every mm-hmm. time she like wanted to like you know get some justice and we see them stand with her despite these political pressures despite like threats on their lives mm-hmm. and you know like i think that was that yeah. was really nice to see as like yeah you know, i mean it's rare like it's, it's very it's so rare. rare yeah and the thing is that you know it's not just you know like to give you know credit to her father and brother for you know standing with her but also like just like the women in her life who uprooted you know 
their lives to like you know move with her like you know to like all mm. these places right like they were very supportive even emotionally we see her mother her sister-in-law mm. them being just super supportive um even though their lives have been kind of just like torn apart by this like case as well but yeah like honor killing right like <laughs> i feel like there's no discussion of purity culture without talking about honor killing it is the like uber extreme end of like Absolutely. purity culture and like the preservation of it where it's like oh yeah we need to preserve purity culture honor culture even if it means killing the source of dishonor right in its definition right. but yeah like we see this you know again everywhere around the world you know maybe just not the same name but it is sad just how prevalent it is both in the subcontinent and the diaspora spaces. You'd think like, you know, if Western legislative systems and whatnot were like solutions to all this or modernity was a solution <laughs> to all this, why is this just as prevalent in diaspora spaces? Like, right. And ultimately, the thing is that it is like a casteist, classist and patriarchal instrument. And it's made so that it could be used to maintain social boundaries. But, yeah. you know, like, just on the baseline of it, it's just one of the most terrifying tools of control in place to keep women and marginalized peoples in check, right? It's like, oh, yeah, like, don't if do that. Don't, We're going to kill you, and then we have a good justification for it. Yeah, exactly. Unquote. Nobody will, like, you know, care if we kill you because you mm -hmm. did a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. and I think, like... You know, it's really horrifying how honor killing is just casually suggested as the solution to quash any kind of, like, social deviation. But I think, yeah, like, in the context of Kainat, like, we also see that, you know, it's even sadder because we see how this large family of, like, 14, 15 people have to move to Karachi just so they can get, like, some access to, like, you know, legal resources and the justice system. Mm -hmm. And they're also, like, run out of their, like, local area through, like, these political goons or, like, you know, um, just, like, threatened constantly. Yeah. And they continue to, like, persevere, but, like, Yeah, still. and, like, they continue to persevere for over 10 years. I think it's a still ongoing case. Yeah, the like, appeal it's been is over still ongoing. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is that, you know, it, it's really sad just, like, you know, this is clearly the documentary was made because this case received a lot of, like, media coverage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we saw, like, you know, politicians and other powerful become only publicly interested in her case after her older brother was murdered he was also the sole breadwinner yeah. of the family and it's just a very dramatic experience for the family right and you know the, this just case just escalated so much and the suffering that her and her family had to go through and how their trauma was neglected by the political and legal institutions while the accused faced little to no consequences it's, it's just I think that it just made the whole documentary so horrifying to watch but like also like knowing that that's just the reality for so many people and that that Kenneth is one of the lucky ones to be even able to like pursue it as far as she did like yeah i mean, no, I that's mean also it really makes you think of like the millions of cases that never mm. even get reported registered anything mm. like you know and i mean yeah i think like the the lack of consequence for like such brutal sexual violence like the fact that the accused were like i think they were only jailed 
during the court proceedings and they were like mm-hmm. later like accused uh, acquitted sorry and mm-hmm. when they were once they were acquitted and this was in 2014 i think kainat's been pursuing like an appeal of the decision and i mean i guess we'll know whenever like something happens and the legal system yeah. moves forward but like yeah it's just like a stagnant case at this point mm-hmm. you know like many many more in like millions yeah. probably more literally yeah the backlogs in the court systems you know like just yeah. pretty I mean, much work in the favor of statute of limitations and um but yeah like it's really depressing overall obviously but um this really epitomizes why so many victims in south asia have such little faith in the system Definitely. and we often see like you know this manifest like you know and it's justified right like but like mm. i think that we often see this manifest in the mainstream demands that come forward as a result of it and usually that you know we hear the you know the the protests and everything where people will say yeah the re- accused rapist should be institutionally murdered um but you know many many years of feminist legal and criminology scholarship has shown that punitive justice has never done much to mm-hmm. curb incidences of rape like anywhere and in fact it does the opposite because the legal threshold for death penalty is always higher mm. and the burden of proof is always placed on the victim um and and also additionally like if death penalty is in place the victims are more likely to be murdered after they're raped which is again another layer of like just problem yeah i mean um in india like actually like a couple of years ago um there was uh, you know feminist groups and activists really sort of came out in protest when um they instated a death penalty for um child molesters in the indian penal code and the whole argument that the feminist groups were making was that these children are less likely to survive assault um if there's a death penalty in place because then like the perpetrators would rather just like leave them for dead than like ever have someone who can like speak against them you know mm-hmm. and and it has like the statistics show that the incidences of like death in child molestation have increased since this policy was like adopted and mm-hmm. you know ultimately these things do nothing for current or future victims because we live in a society where the victim's word is anyway less reliable and less believable than the perpetrators yeah and like according polit- to society yeah according to society yeah and like oftentimes these politicians will like you know congratulate themselves and pat themselves on the back for like even instating a death penalty but it's virtually ineffective because if you aren't creating preventive policies that reduce the instances of sexual and gender based violence then i mean it doesn't matter if there's a death penalty or mm-hmm. not if you no know, one's like ever going to get to that point like yeah, yeah exactly yeah. there needs to be other systemic change along mm-hmm. with it you know yeah and it requires more than just like institutional change right i mean like not like sociology institution def- definitions but like in you know institutions and like you know just like social mindsets and attitudes mm-hmm. and not but like it's unfortunately just going to be <laughs> such a long and arduous Definitely. process and i just hope yeah. that we can get started on it you know because no it just i mean yeah i hope that we can get start to make a dent on it um for sure yeah. 
no, I am sighing like on record. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is just. I mean, I get that this is just a really hard sort of topic to get through for the audience, and I think even like just for us, for us yeah. yeah. No, it is like. I mean, we're just pausing to process, like, just, like, what came through at this point. I think everyone else needs sort of, like, a moment to, like, reflect, too. But, yeah, no, like, it is very much just so depressing. It's depressing for everyone. And I think it is very sad that we have to still differentiate that, like, oh, yeah, like, because it's important to solving this problem is to recognize that it is, like, perhaps worst for others more not perhaps it is worse for others right um than for some it's worse for some people more worse for some people than it is for others um yeah and it's a very unpleasant sort of like i understand it's a very unpleasant or it feels like a very invalid it feels like sort an of, uncomfortable thing to sit with and like reflect yeah. on right yeah. yeah and i think like there's always this sort of like neoliberal class blind feminism where equality is sort of you know like just like equality is just synonymous with like gender equality but never Mm. like class or caste or like Mm. just any other you know like disability or any sorts of other equality like at least in like i mean just mainstream sort of neoliberal feminist like arguments And I think that, you know, there's always the don't invalidate women. All women face the same problems. It's universal. But it's not yeah, universal. Yeah, it's not universal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, women and this are is different from people who do have a lot of privilege in the societies that they came from, right? Like, yeah. we come from relative, like, privilege. And the thing is Yeah, that I mean, you and I can't say that our experience as, you know, not men in South Asia is the same as the experience of someone who is, like, economically maybe disprivileged. It's just yeah. really not. Like, yeah. the safety nets that we have access to, the resources mm-hmm. are entirely different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, yeah, with that, I think we can get into sort of just, you know, the next segment of this. You know, with all of the legal obstacles even still considered, like even looking at Kainat's case, her biggest challenge was society and how it views women, right? And how people thought that she was so audacious and like greedy for even demanding justice instead of like, you know, taking this violence like silently. Mm-hmm. And all of this plays back into like the legal system, right? Because like the legal system will very much reflect societal mindsets too and we Mm. live in countries where a woman's quote-unquote character and how men perceive her plays a greater role in court than the severity of the crime committed (laughs) against her always yeah Yeah, and it takes very little in our (laughs) culture for a woman to be deemed undeserving of justice Um, yeah it it doesn't take very much at all and i think like even in kainat's case we see like you know the 
lawyers of the accused where they like man where they show these papers and photos and they were perhaps manufactured perhaps not and these papers apparently prove that she is married to one of her mm. rapists while like Kainat says that she was drugged through this entire process and she has no recollections of the things that happened to her and this like this marriage proof was used to negate her like allegations entirely and so because as a married woman she's incapable of being raped by her supposed husband who was one of the accused and i mean that's just like a whole other level of shittiness that like yeah i mean yeah like we all know that marital rape is pretty much just not recognized in that we just blink yeah. it away like we just turn the other way yeah. and we never and think about it never talk I about mean, it yeah. I mean, it's bad enough as it is but what's even worse is that in Kenneth's story she was a child when this or- incident occurred and not of legal marriageable age even according to like i think pakistan's laws mm. and mm-hmm. children are usually you know deemed worthy of social empathy are seen as vulnerable victims of sexual predation. But, but, mm. not mm. here. Always just need one reason to just not give the victims, like, any, anything, like, anything, yeah. any sympathy. Like, they are undeserving of your sympathy as long as there's one flaw. And the thing is that, you know, the fact that the possibly inauthentic proof of marriage superseded the fact that she was a minor and not even legally capable of giving consent, like, or just the fact that the marriage essentially means that a man's position of a woman is just more legally valuable than her mm-hmm. own autonomy over her own body and sexuality. I think yeah, that is much. the cherry on this, like, fucking, like, shit Sunday. Like, it is obscenely horrifying how they were just like, oh, no, well, she's married, so, like, it's fine. Like, you know, he can do whatever he pleases, you know. Like, and it's just... Yeah, and I think, like, in we see this not just in, like, the documentaries we've watched, but, like, every time there's this new media uproar about the latest spree of, like, sexual violence in any of our countries, we'll always see, you know, the media, the society, like, arbitrary tearing down this victim's identity, bringing everything about them mm-hmm. into, like, public scrutiny, like, from, yeah. like, you know, the schools that they went to, to the clothes that they or were the wearing. the families like, they have, yeah. Yeah. Or, like, everything. Like, if, you know, the thing is that, you know, if an uproar is made about Me. you at all, yeah. only certain victims get the privilege of uproar and outrage in our society, and that, too, isn't that great. Like, um... Yeah, and, like, I mean, we've said this before, but, like, oftentimes the victims who are, you know, deemed quote-unquote deserving of public outrage belong to upper class or middle class and higher caste spaces most of the time, you know. And despite this, even they don't get much respite, you know. Every element of their lives are, like, you know, brought into, like, public view. Um, Anything could possibly, like, disqualify Mm. them from deserving empathy could it be how she dressed was she out at night did she go out with men all that usual spiel and i mean the idea is that the perfect victim is someone who does everything in her power not to get raped Mm -hmm. and the irony really (laughs) is that a perfect victim is someone who never gets raped you know Mm -hmm. the perfect victim isn't 
perfect victim. Yeah, a perfect victim isn't a victim at all. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it is ironic. Like, you know, like the thing is that in the model victim theory, no one is spared. Like someone who got raped is the very person who is at fault. And, Mm -hmm. you know, well, something has to be since good girls just don't get raped. Your publicly determined virtue signals your rights to safety. And that is unfortunately just the culture that we live in. Right. That, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to go on a brief, brief tangent. Like, you know, (laughs) the thing is that, you know, this idea of good girls that, like, we'll hear, like, you know, and we talked about it a bit in the last episode with consent, but good girls is a very, you know, as abstract and, like, you know, just ever-changing as it is, it is still, An arbitrary, yeah. It's, and it's arbitrary, but it, it it is still, there are a certain few standards to it, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, obviously, it's patriarchal and ultimately men decided. But mm-hmm. just to briefly touch on, there are women who feel like, you know, they are doing their best to try and accomplish these sort of, like, standards, which are mostly unachievable. Like, I don't think you can do anything, like, at all to, like, reach the standard. But, you know, and I don't think they're all trying to, like, virtue signal or, like, weaponize patriarchal standards against, like, other women. But, Honestly. you know, and they're trying to survive as well. But, you know, it is a little funny. I get why someone would want to, like, take up some of these standards. Because, you know, like, literally there is this um, case a few years ago in Bangladesh. And the only reason it received any, like, public sympathy, um, I think her name was Nusrat, um, mm. was because, like, you know, this is someone who was raped and then burned and alive. Oh yeah, this, alive. it was a child, right? It was a child. Um, the only reason that she received any sympathy was because she was covered and she was set on fire. Like, oh and that God. she was going to die. And that was literally it. Because I bet if she was alive, like, people would find something. People would spend the next month trying to find something on her. And it is horrifying. And this is someone who was very, very strong. Like, she named all her rapists. She named all the people who cooperated with them. And then she died. She, like, she stuck around to do that. And that, you know, like, you know. That, it, that's props in itself. Yeah, props yeah, in but itself. I mean, but, like, it is that just it was so, even necessary. Yeah, like, but, like, just, I remember when it happened, everyone said, she's our sister. She, like, you know, was covered. And, you know, I get it. Like, if you grow up in Bangladesh and, you know as a woman so sucks but like i mean if you grew up as a woman in bangladesh i can see why you'd feel like oh yeah no i need to do the maximum so that when i get raped like people say that you know i didn't deserve it and i'm worthy of sympathy rather than just being discarded by society yeah and we're like raised with that right and i mean i don't think any of us is like above you know, trying to, like, make the patriarchy work for us. Because, like, even as, like, you know, younger women in South Asia or, like, adult women in South Asia, like, I used to live, you know, by myself in Bombay for a few years. And I had to change how I dressed in certain spaces because I felt more safe. And, I mean, I'm not saying that, like, you know, it was a virtual signaling thing, but I think it's really important to, like, not ignore the mm-hmm. fact that you know this choice to 
be modest isn't weaponized against others because mm-hmm. i mean it's not anyone's individual fault but we don't live in like an apolitical mm-hmm. vacuum right our choices have consequences beyond ourselves and it's something to like stay cognizant of i think yeah no i can think about just like myself like i was someone who was just like oh i'm just never going to get married because marriage is just such an archaic patriarchal <laughs> institution oh, but yeah. like also like yes patriarchal but yes it helps you know yeah, you kind of have sure. to just make it work for you but like has my life been significantly has it been significantly easier to navigate institutions since i got married yeah absolutely yeah. 100% it is just that is just the fact of it um but yeah and it, even like doors open up to you right like when you mm-hmm. signal certain things in society like yeah. you know like there like people will perceive you a certain way and yeah. you know you may get rewards time, from that yeah know? yeah i get rewarded for this choice I do. And similarly, I think modesty is rewarded in our culture mm. in a similar way. But at the same time, I think it would be unfair to say that, like, I, in choosing to get married, I don't help, like, you know, help uphold that sort of, like, right. archaic institution. Because I'm right. in choosing to get married and benefit from its privileges, I am also part of sort of, sort of, you know, partaking in, like, sort of the oppressive patriarchy of it all yeah 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 Yeah. and i think that's what we're trying to say we're not trying to say that you know you're at fault or anything i don't think i'm at fault for wanting to just like live in like just how shitty the world is but like also like it is it is a perk and it is a perk that has a negative effect on that is weaponized against others um yeah. Yeah. No, like I mean, I, this is like a funny, sorry, like funny, lighthearted tangent. But like, I was talking to my dad, like, and he was like, "Oh, um, why hasn't Rekha gotten married yet? You know, like you gotten married. <laughs> Rekha's also like your age. Why hasn't she gotten married? Doesn't she want to get married? What will she do?" And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> "Oh my gosh, like, does, 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 like, does she does she have does she have a does she have a boyfriend?" Um, yeah, but like, I mean, you see what it does, right? Like, when I partake in it, it is a standard. It it helps, it does help uphold the standard a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, I think, like, Like, we've been coming from the same place with, like, marriage, right? I think Mm -hmm. we went to college together and we Mm -hmm. used to talk shit about, like, you know, arranged marriages. And, like, thankfully, we've, like, grown from that. But, I mean, marriage always felt like something to me that I've may not like just do yeah, at it, all it but felt i think the same thing to me as well like it did yeah but like, i think like much. even the fact that you got married like this year you know has like normalized that for me a little bit i would say you know that like i mean i'm not planning to get married obviously anytime soon but like i understand that parts of my life would become a lot easier, easier yeah. if i did and know? the thing is that like and also, at the same time, that you might hear it more because your friend's gotten married, right? It's like, oh, yeah. why are you getting married? And, like, yeah, like, and you see what we're, what we mean with this, right? Like, it is, like, mm-hmm. just, like, casually, like, how similarly modesty culture is often swung over sort of other women and weaponized within purity culture. And it's not the fault mm-hmm. of the women themselves. They're just trying to get by. But it is, you know, 
it is, you know, just that. And in an ideal world, we should get to do whatever we want free of societal constraints. But yeah. we don't live in an ideal world. <laughs> and the choice to be modest can have different political implications. In the West, it carries the political weight of resistance and like mm-hmm. facing like challenges, like and just like standing up for your identity. Whereas, yeah. you know, like that choice, if it exists even, to be mm. modest in our parts of the world, sort of, you know, it carries a different implication. It carries the weight of conformity. And mm. it reinforces the binarization of that good and bad, of purity and impurity, and of the idea of whether you're deserving of empathy or contempt. Right. And it's that reinforce reinforcing of it that I think is the issue yeah. that I think we don't talk enough about about. and like how it's context dependent i think like western a lot of western politicians will love to use this as sort of like a blanket like oh yeah look at how oppressive and whatever the hijab is but the hijab is not oppressive in the west to that degree right yeah the hijab is not oppressive in the west right and the thing is that in the west when you cover yourself you face more obstacles for it Right. Mm. You are doing like, you know, you aren't seen as good in the West for being modest. You're seen like in, as like someone who sticks out when you Yeah, like, you're seen as the social deviation and, and the yeah. I think there is a big resistance element to modesty culture in the West. And which is mm. why I think a lot of Western political discourse on modesty, which is, you know, what often dominates, doesn't look into just the other elements of you know modesty in like say like south asia i'm not gonna we're not gonna go into the middle east we're not middle eastern i don't want to talk about like the lack of choice but like specifically like i think within south asia there is choice again and for for most people hopefully there is choice you know at least socially for some people, for some people you know and there's choice institutionally technically mm. but you know there is political implication that's completely different. And there's social rewards and, like, punishments for, like, you know, making the choice or not making the choice. I think those are, like, also, like, a thing, right? And I think, like, we're not saying this because we don't value women's choices. I think we, like, (laughs) we personally value Mm -hmm. everyone's autonomy and, like, their ability to make their own personal choices. Um, But I think, like... You know, the way that this whole, like, phenomenon has been, like, presented. I think, like, a few months ago, I think I saw this, like, Facebook video of this woman in the UK. Um, who was something, it was, like, the housewife, the 1950s housewife trend or something. And this woman is talking about, like, and it's a white lady. She's talking about how, you know, she wants to stay at home. She wants to cook for her husband and she wants to take care of her children. And so, like, you know, feminism or, like, the current, like, or the sort of second, third wave feminism of women should go out to work and be, like, equally, like, financially independent doesn't work for her. And that's great. Like, if she wants to make that choice, that's great. But I think... That's a choice in the UK, right? Like in India or like Bangladesh or like Pakistan, women will like get educated only to be married off. They will never 
get to make the conscious choice mm-hmm. that I want to stay at home and be there for my husband. Or yeah, like, I or like work. working class women won't have that choice because they have to go out to work. Yeah. 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 And I think like, you know, the, the existence of like people's choices in this binary of like good and bad and like, or that just choice itself is enough is like this very insulated like yeah like the choice feminism yeah yeah Um, and it like i think it doesn't really contextualize how the intersectional realities of what choices are even like available to people mm -hmm. in the first place right and i think it's especially sad when some of these choices are used to justify like horrific kinds of oppression and violence against people in marginalized spaces who sometimes don't have the option to even exercise that choice yeah. in the first place. So, like, we get people being like, oh, women shouldn't be outside, but working-class women don't have the option to not be outside. Mm-hmm. So, like, how are you disparaging someone or, like, deeming them undeserving of justice when it is literally not a choice to be in or outside? Like, we live... You have created a society. We have created a society that mm. literally does not allow working class people to exercise some of these like choices that are then moral standards, right? And it is unfortunately like a middle class plight because, you know, speci- specifically in the neoliberal late capitalist framework, morality mm. is synonymous with any other like market risk, right? And it mm. functions that way in that framework right that oh and we see it right only the privileged are allowed to get away with morally risky behavior because you Mm. know there's institutional and social safety nets available to them and Mm. the poor don't get to make choices you know that could minimize risk or the resources to mitigate its consequences so Mm. you know there is just you know no choice in terms of the risk that they have to take but you know it is ultimately the middle class who face the greater burden of sort of the choices and the thing is that it's essentially saying that you know the middle class have to be more risk averse not just financially you know as it but morally but morally as well because Mm. people put a lot more weight in their ability to have just minimal choice when Mm. you know rich people don't get to have that issue because rich people can you know be risk prone you know and just you know get away with a lot more um but yeah yeah no it's like the microeconomics of moral choice making mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah. and that, that is how everything is set up right that rational beings will make mm. rational moral choices yeah and i think like i mean you know talking about like arbitrary like moral standards or like these qualifiers for morality even men aren't like you know exempt from them because Obviously, there's a model victim, but society also has its own biases in deciding who is, you know, the typical rapist. And oftentimes we're forced to picture this, you know, rural, traditional, working class man, possibly from a marginalized caste or group background. And again, this is no coincidence. We are raised to view like people like this as this antithesis of Western modernity. And they're like a threat to the safety, the agency and the productivity of women. And those biases like, you know, play out like in different ways for different groups of people. Mm -hmm. And while women are expected to abide by these arbitrary moral standards to get any justice at all, 
the same moral standards are then weaponized against men of marginalized backgrounds to demonize them further and exclude them from due process. And if the threads mm. are becoming like clear at this point, <laughs> the issue isn't morality at all. It's just yeah. standards set in place to protect the power and hierarchies of class, caste, and gender in society. Yeah, and I think like even in the inadequate statistics that we have available, it's really evident that, you know, people from marginalized backgrounds are more likely to face gender-based or sexual violence and are also less likely to see justice. And on the flip side, we also know that men from marginalized backgrounds are far more likely to be prosecuted uh, than men from privileged backgrounds, when the reality is that men from upper class or upper caste backgrounds are equally likely to be violent or be rapists, but they just have to face fewer consequences mm -hmm. or they can just get away with it easier. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is an important place to sort of bring in sort of the tangent that like, you know, someone will eventually bring in, but we just want to get ahead of it is, you know, false accusations. They are pretty <laughs> much a staple deflector in every conversation about rape as some guy mm -hmm. will inadvertently pop up every time with some anecdotal data about how many women falsely accuse men of rape. And like, oh let's get God. it straight. Like the statistics are not just, you know, overinflated, but also mm. just more of a reflection on the failures of the legal system to deliver justice than about women's honesty. Like it, it is just, you know, just such a pointless yeah. deflector. Um, yeah, and I think like one of the things that like has been examined in recent times is that most of the cases that are like called false accusations are usually the ones where they don't get to trial or the cases are dismissed without any investigation. And knowing the state of, you know, how our legal system and law enforcement investigates rape in the first place and the sort of intimidation practices mm -hmm. and the social backlash that prevail in our countries. I mean, how are we really going to rely on these numbers? You mm -hmm. know, Yeah. And, you know, the thing is that what's ultimately sad is the men's rights activists that do talk about false accusations, like often rarely ever talk about the real problem with false accusations, that it's not that dishonest women, it's not just dishonest women that they should be worrying about, mm. it's dishonest, powerful men, more often exactly. than them, right? And historically, false accusations have been a tool of suppressing men from marginalized backgrounds, and this is a recurring theme in purity culture. Right, the mm. viewing women as objects, oppressing them, but also using them as tools to oppress others. Yeah, and I think that this like thread of you know, um, there are certain kinds of men that need to be fixed or like you know made better, kind of you know continues on even in these more modern liberal supposedly feminist spaces, mm. and I think that kind of brings us to what was um, the last documentary we watched called um, Boys Who Like Girls, which is a collaborative production between a Scandinavian and an Indian like um, production house. And it follows this NGO in India, in Bombay, um, where they're working towards providing gender awareness and education to children from 
urban marginalized spaces. And the majority of these children are like, you know, children of migrant workers, of, you know, daily wage workers who live in these urban slum spaces, which already have restricted access to like most resources, I think. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's like, you know, great that, you know, like the work that they're doing, I think like Absolutely. what we got to see it. It's, what we got to see of it was like pretty amazing like going mm. from exercises that combat like sort of dehumanizing perceptions of women to creating spaces that foster healthy masculinity and just building avenues for creative pursuits in general i think it's just mm. really holistic in its like approach like they do camps they do workshops and it's just nice because like so many of these children just do not have access to any sort of like healthy extracurriculars right absolutely and the documentary kind of goes through their organizational challenges too and follows one of the students throughout you know this like his life and growth during his time with the organization Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and I think like it was really great absolutely I think the work that they're doing is so important but I think sort of the tone of the documentary was this very similar like western capitalist um, neoliberal like tone right that these are the men that need to be fixed and Mm -hmm. I mean, even NGOs like often will who profess to be working towards gender equality and doing like this preventive work against sexual violence, they will suffer from these same social biases, right? That only certain kinds of men need to be like educated. Like, Mm -hmm. why aren't we educating like men in like more upper class, more upper caste or privileged Mm -hmm. spaces to the same degree, right? Yeah, and the thing is that organizations like the one in the documentary, they're called MAVA, Men Against Violence and Abuse, and like, you know, they definitely deserve a shout out. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that if we want to focus on some of the positive elements of it, I really, really enjoyed seeing like one of the exercises that they like were doing, and it particularly stood out. Because, like, the mentors ask the boys who, like, are in the age range between, like, I think, like, 10 to, like, 18 Mm. or something. Um, Mm. And they were asked to make this collage with, like, magazine cuttings of women. And they were supposed Mm. to put them in, like, two columns, good and bad. Like, what's a good girl? What's a bad girl? And what they came out with as a result was just very telling of how ingrained the Madonna whore binary, like, outlook of women is even in younger children and teenagers Um, yeah i mean they're imbibing this like from like the start pretty much and i think we've been talking about these binaries throughout this episode and how they are really the foundations of purity culture in the south asian context because Mm -hmm. these unachievable standards of behavior for people are not just patriarchally dictated but they also serve to maintain and sustain those caste class and ethno linguistic purity in those like groups right Mm -hmm. yeah and the thing is that you know like other than maintaining the standards like oftentimes these are also rooted in just like very nationalistic and patriarchal like ideas that also objectify women as property meant to be protected with violence against others right um we see this you know we talked about it in the previous episode where just this is done so commonly in like bollywood like you know the so many movies the premise is just like oh some guys come for your girls like is it that you need to like go like defend it because because she's a good girl right Mm. and the thing is that you know 
these this is this view is not just used to like objectify and be reductive about women, but it's also used to oppress others, others rather than actually yeah. assure safety and well being to the specific women themselves. And mm. you know, this persists in the whole like cultural honor aspect of it, essentially. Like where mm. it's your women who are viewed as the you know, the physical embodiment of purity of your people. And mm. women are seen as sort of the upholders of your traditions and your sociocultural values. And of course, like your children <laughs> too. Like women yeah. are just everything but people. They're just vessels. <laughs> Always yeah. vessels, never people. Yeah, and like all of this is just a whole other can of worms on just like, you know, objectification <laughs> and the multiple layers of it. But, mm. you know, you know, women are, oh, we live in a very interesting sort of, but depressing sort of world where women are simultaneously pedestalized and yet still dehumanized, right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's something we hope to tackle in an up episode of course um but i think for now we really hope that you know these last two episodes that where we've been talking about consent and rape and purity culture have served at least as a starting point to reflect on the different facets of patriarchal and other oppression that people face in our societies and like how ultimately neither the neoliberal modernity nor the traditional morality absolves women of being personally responsible for their safety. Yeah, and I think we definitely need to aspire to get to a point where, you know, our choices and our identity locations don't determine whether we deserve well-being and safety or not. And I mean, that's obviously like an idealistic hope, but I mean, we hope that we can. Yeah, but it's just there. such a baseline hope, right? Like, it is just such a baseline that we want to share. It's baseline, but it's yeah. also like the most idealistic thing currently in our mm-hmm. world, like, yeah. you know. But I think, yeah, um, for this episode, we will definitely list all of our resources on our website, sarisonscreen.com. But we really encourage everyone seeking out more intersectional scholarship um, by themselves and, you know, Maybe sending it to us as well, because we would like to keep learning about these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're like by no means experts on this, and we're always learning constantly. So definitely send anything you find on our way. Or if if you have any comments on this, like let us know. We're available Mm -hmm. at Saris on Screen everywhere. You can email us at team at sarisonscreen.com. Um, but yeah, like, you know, we hope that we were able to present some of these points like sensitively. Um, and in an accessible way. And we hope you are able to check out some of the documentaries that we brought up here. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So thank you all for tuning into this episode of Saris on Screen. Make sure to subscribe and drop us some feedback. We're available anywhere that podcasts are platformed. And make sure to also check out our website and follow us on our socials. We'll be back in two weeks with our next deep dive on a Pakistani movie, which we're really excited about. Yeah, see you then. Bye.